jump into 1824. Father God, we come to you tonight and we uh, always express our gratitude for a place to gather that is safe and warm and that involves these individuals that desire to grow in you and to be moved by your spirit and in transformation and love for your son and commitment to you. And we just pray that you would be with our time tonight as we look at this passage and Paul's life and the individuals that are highlighted by Luke. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to respond to what it is that your spirit would prompt us to do and with this text tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Tom left off at verse 23 of chapter 18 last week, uh, and so we're picking up in verse 24 of 18, and we're going to be going through the first part of chapter 20, um, and what we have here is Paul's third uh, missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey, and that's why we have this uh, amazing, colorful map. You're like, why didn't you print this map off? I would have paid $5 for this map um, because I just found it literally about six minutes ago. Um, so this gives us a, a good picture of uh, Paul's third, third journey, obviously ending down in Jerusalem in the bottom corner there where it says Judea. Uh, so we'll be looking at that tonight. Um, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Remember, Paul um, is headed to Ephesus. Uh, so Apollos comes to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly uh, helped, those who th helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And we're going to read just a little bit more into starting into 19. And it happened what and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So we get this Apollos individual um, and we have a bit of a challenge with him because uh, we're told by Luke that he only knew the baptism of John. And that is a, an important point as we look at this first, uh, a little bit of the first section tonight, is we hear about the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus. And if you remember back um, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, or into the Gospel of Mark, um, G John was to come with a baptism of repentance. And, Jesus, and John says, Jesus came with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we will get into a little bit more. Basically, Apollos didn't have a full-formed theology or understanding of who Jesus was, but he knew of Jesus very well. 
So he was basically a biblical scholar in our day, but he was a little bit off in his understanding of how the Jesus thing worked, which it creates some interesting challenges for us because we're told that he, in verse 28 or in verse 27, that he helped many uh, who through grace had believed and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And there was an old saying when I played college football that if you're going to make a mistake, do it at maximum effort. Okay? So if you're going to screw up, screw up at 100 miles an hour, not 50 miles an hour, because if you're going to screw up, you might as well just go all out. Apollos basically embraced that. He wasn't intentionally in, in errant or wasn't erring intentionally. It wasn't like he was trying to spread heresy. He was doing the best that he could with what he knew. And we know that he was doing the best that he could because in verse 25, Luke tells us that he was, be, he was fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. And, and we, we look at this and we're like, oh, yeah, I mean, sometimes we are tentative in sharing the gospel because we're afraid that we don't have all the answers and so we don't share the gospel at all. Whereas Apollos is like, I'm sharing everything I know <laughs> and I don't know everything, but I'll share everything that I do know and look what happens. All these people come to Christ. And he has Priscilla and Aquila, who we learned about last week. They hear him, and they say, you're so close. And if we just help you understand just a little bit more, we can get you to be a really a superstar in the faith. And if you are familiar with 1 Corinthians, Paul references Apollos, and part of the challenge with Apollos is there is this uproar of people who are siding with Apollos and saying, I'm a disciple of Apollos, I'm a disciple of Paul, and, and that, that's a different discussion for a different time, but what we want to know from 1 Corinthians is that Paul makes a case that Apollos was a key component of his ministry in watering the seeds that were planted. But in that, we have Priscilla and Aquila, who we know from last week, who are very active members of the church and, and advancing the gospel. And they encounter this individual who is fervent in spirit and doing all these things. And they stand up and they say, you are wrong. No, they don't. Uh, they, they say, ah, this is a guy who has so much potential. Let's come alongside him and help him in what he is doing, but let's do it in a private fashion. And it comes to question, when we encounter somebody who is so excited about the gospel and sharing the gospel, but is, isn't quite aligned, meaning they aren't quite accurate in how they're presenting things, how do we respond to those people? And in our uh, time before this with the discussion leaders, 
Uh, Phil brought up the idea of social media, and if you see a friend who posts something on social media, do you put in the comments, you are an idiot. (laughs) I can't believe you posted this. You are so wrong. Or do we go and do we call them or contact them separately in private, holding their dignity and acknowledging the importance of a personal correction? If I ever say anything that you don't agree with, I would hope that you would, at the minimum, write me an anonymous note and leave it on my desk. (laughs) I would hope that you would say, Eric, you know, you said this one thing, and I'm not quite sure if I heard you right, but help me understand what you were trying to say. Versus that raucous time after this when we have our we come back together for all the questions that have come up in the discussion groups, and you raise your hand and you say, Eric, you know you're wrong. That would not be a good thing. That would not be a good thing. Just come up to me afterwards privately, and we can discuss this. Apollos was a very important person within the ministry of Paul and within the advancement of the gospel, and it is quite interesting because he was so close, and yet his error is pointed out here. And we ask ourselves, is Luke pointing out Apollos because of his error? Absolutely not. He's pointing him out because of the importance of his fervency and bringing Aquila and Priscilla into this conversation and what they were doing within the faith. So um, as we can see on this um, map, Paul is taking this Um, inland journey, okay, Uh, as it says in verse 19, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul goes through this inside passage. You can see Paul doesn't take the the seafaring route to Ephesus, which is uh, basically right in the middle of Asia on the coast. He takes the inland route. Um, Not sure why, maybe he was having some issues with uh, seasickness. Don't know. We don't know. We just know that he did. And so as he, uh, he goes there, and he encounters these disciples. Now, it's an interesting thing because um, are these disciples of John? Are these disciples of Jesus? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Why does he just use this generic phrase, disciples? Uh, and he said to them, Do you receive, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men In all. So, Paul immediately encounters these 12 individuals who clearly are trying to follow after uh, the way of Christ, or as we see, the way, just the way, capital W. And Paul asks them about the Holy Spirit, and they're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So, um, 
he explains to them about this idea of the baptism of John versus the baptism of Jesus, and we question um, what exactly is going on here because they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we think immediately what he's talking about is a water baptism, but we would have also known John's baptism as Jesus is baptized by John in the water. John would have baptized with water as well. And so this baptism of Jesus is clearly what John had proclaimed as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which gets kind of confusing because we say, at what point do we receive the Holy Spirit? Now, we can easily look at a proof text like this and say this is the normative way for which you receive the Holy Spirit. In essence, you come to faith in Christ, and then at another point, somebody lays their hands on you and you receive the Holy Spirit. Or, you don't receive the Holy Spirit until you are baptized in water. But for all of these people, if you come to faith in the ancient Near Eastern world at this time of Christ, as soon as you come to faith, you would be baptized. If you remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch, he says, hey, I, I've come to Christ. There's a pond. Let, may I be baptized? They would not understand what we do today where we come to faith in Christ, and then at some point, eventually, we decide that we're going to be baptized in water. See, because when, when we come to faith in Christ, we immediately receive the Holy Spirit. So what they have experienced is not normative. It is not the normal way of how things work. It is a unique experience. And we must keep that at the forefront of our minds. Likewise, we see them receiving the Holy Spirit and immediately speaking in tongues and prophesying. And we say, well, when I received the Holy Spirit, when I came to faith in Christ, I didn't do either of these things. I didn't speak in tongues and I didn't prophesy. Therefore, have I not received the Holy Spirit? Well, for many of us, when we grow up in a tradition where the Holy Spirit is not a large focus, we oftentimes go years, decades of our lives, not ever thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have God the Father, and we have Jesus who saves us, and oh, by the way, there's this other person that's called the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't residing in us, because we clearly know that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In essence, we are given this proof of our salvation, our justification, our commitment to Christ, which is the Holy Spirit. So we cannot get bogged down in saying, I haven't received the Holy Spirit. If you have said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. If you aren't acknowledging the Holy Spirit, if we don't acknowledge the Holy Spirit's place in our life, or we explain it in a different way, it doesn't mean that it's not there. Likewise, when we come to realize the role of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes 
we start seeing it everywhere. <laughs> like, it's the old, you buy a car that you think is so uber special, and then you're like, oh, that person has that same, there's, that, there's my car again. Everyone's driving my car. I thought this car was special. Well, the Holy Spirit is special, but oftentimes we don't even acknowledge it until, or see it working until we acknowledge it in our own lives. The Holy Spirit is to be the seal of the promise of our justification in Christ. Now, the idea of baptism, again, for them, is a clear sign of a conversion experience, just like it is for us today. We say you are baptized as a public profession of an inward commitment to Christ. For them, there would have been no question about when you were baptized, you come to faith, receive the Holy Spirit, and then you are baptized out of a public profession of faith. John knew all along that his baptism of repentance, turning from our old selves and going towards what God has planned for us, was not going to be the final straw. And these guys had gotten so close, and Paul just helped nudge them over the edge. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about them about the kingdom of God. But then some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, there's that reference, of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and and Greeks. We remember last week, Paul was teaching in the synagogues, and he runs into an issue, okay, and then he goes to the Gentiles, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. So he continues that same format. He enters into the synagogue, and for three months, he speaks boldly, proclaiming uh, the kingdom of God, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God, which is an interesting phrase that for some reason, keeps coming up and up and up again over the past two months in my own life. And it's, it's a phrase that we oftentimes skip over. And it's interesting because our small group is going through this book right here, Onward, by Russell Moore. And just on Sunday, we were discussing what the kingdom of God is and how often we miss out on what is the kingdom of God and how does it relate to us today. And oftentimes when we think of the kingdom of God, what do we think of? Heaven. Thank you. We say, oh, the kingdom of God is heaven. And so the kingdom of God is a place that I will go eventually after I die or Jesus comes back. That is not the case at all. That is not the case. Jesus says many times the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning now and not yet. The kingdom of God is present wherever there are followers of Jesus Christ or people who are ruled and reigned by God. It's where the reign of God exists and where his people are. So the kingdom of God is right here. Like... <laughs> Sure hope the second kingdom of God is a lot better and warmer. Hello. 
but Paul is talking about the kingdom of God and how often is it that when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about someday in the future. And Moore's whole point is if we, all we talk about in regards to the kingdom of God is someday down in the future, we're missing out on the draw of the kingdom of God being present in our lives today. And the importance of the role and rule of God in our lives and here on this earth. But some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. So I know, big shocker, he experiences some pushback from the Jews in the synagogue. So he moves over to this hall of Tyrannus, which is an interesting place because uh, either Tyrannus was the teacher who owned this uh, facility, or it was named after, it was either Tyrannus was the teacher at the facility, or it was the owner of the facility. Now, we know that Paul more than likely would go there between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., and it says on a daily basis. Chances are he probably didn't go there on Sundays. He took Sundays off for Sabbathing. And he would go and teach for five hours a day. Why would he go right in the middle of the workday? Well, for most of them, the middle of the workday involved going home, having lunch, and taking a nap. Can I get an amen? Because it would be hot. And so Paul was given like the worst time of day to rent this place to try and connect with these people and teach. And yet we see he has these amazing results. Likewise, he is there every single day for two plus years. Every day for two plus years. And it's interesting because how often do we try to uh, make inroads in a relationship and, and we ask somebody to, you know, hey, want to come to church with me? Ah, no. Hey, uh, what are you doing Sunday? You want to come to church with me? Ah, no. Oh, I tried. <laughs> Asked them twice. <laughs> Wipe the dust off my feet as Paul did last week. And Paul's like, no, two years. So 365 minus, uh, okay, but minus 52 for each Sabbath, which would be Saturday, times two plus a few times four. That's a lot of hours in one spot teaching. You're like, 45 minutes on one night a week is kind of rough. But these people came and they listened to what Paul had to say. And Luke says, maybe in a slight hyperbolic fashion, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So you see up there the pink area, the salmon-colored area. All the people that lived in that whole area came and listened to Paul. Probably quite a few, but maybe a slight exaggeration. We know that there was about 350,000 people that lived in Ephesus. So even if all of Ephesus came and listened to Paul, that was at least 350,000 people right there. Certainly other people passing through would have heard about him. And they would have taken their lunch break. Think about that. They would have taken their lunch break to come 
and to listen to Paul teach. And they would spend five hours. Again, let's think about that. Five hours a day times 30 hours a week spent listening to teaching. That's a long time every single day. But the reality is it paid off. Paul wasn't just going to go from one place to the next place to the next place, which he had been doing. He finds Ephesus and this place to be of significant importance. And as Tom mentioned last week, when he stayed for a year and a half, that was the longest that he had stayed, and now here he stays for over two years. And God is doing some incredible things. And you're starting to see this cultural shift within the city of Ephesus, which comes up here at verse 21 in uh, a bit of a challenge. But we're not there yet. May, this, what's coming up is maybe one of my favorite stories in all of, um, certainly all of Acts 19. <laughs> uh, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, Jew, by the Jesus, that's, that's a bit of a tongue twister, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who in the world are you? <laughs> I love that. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and beat up. <laughs> I mean, how awesome is that? Uh, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. So, remember last week when we were talking about icons? And here, it's interesting because Paul is doing so many miraculous things that even the small things that he had seem to have the power of the Holy Spirit in them and are bringing about miracles, healing the sick, diseases leaving people, evil spirits coming out. I mean, this is a massive thing. The the Spirit of God is moving in a major way in and through Paul, and not only Paul, but the things that he has touched. And frankly, we get a little weirded out. <laughs> or maybe that's just me. Because last week we talked about, you know, icons and worshiping objects, and, and then here we have Paul's iconic handkerchief that is healing these people. 
And when we get distracted by that, we miss out on the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit in this area doing miraculous things through those who are committed to Jesus. And we get the story of evil spirits coming out, and we get the story of this exorcism gone wrong. And it's interesting because Luke, when he, when he talks about the other kind of famous incident that I just taught on a few weeks ago in Mark's gospel, where Jesus goes to shore and there's the demon-possessed man who is, is, breaks through the chains and he's naked and, and he's among the tombs. And Jesus casts out the legion of demons into the pigs. You remember the story? And somebody says, why does, why does he do that? And I said, well, because obviously he's Jewish and he hates pork. Um, obviously he's Jewish and he hates pork into the pigs. Thank you. Uh, and so that guy, he goes from being, from being naked and wounded to clothed and wanting to go with Jesus. And here, these guys <laughs> go from being clothed and pseudo-followers of Jesus to being naked and beaten up. And even the evil spirit, he says, Jesus, I know. Like, you try to use this name Jesus because you know it has power, but you haven't let this name of Jesus infiltrate in, into your own life. Clearly, you're, you're not followers of Jesus. You're trying to capitalize on the name and the power of Jesus to cast me out. He's like, pfft. It's not how this works. Jesus, I know, this name Jesus has great power. And I know that it has great power. But the way you're trying to use it, you can't do that. And so he jumps on them and he beats them up. <laughs> Why is that so funny? You know, it's, we, we see this over and over again. People trying to monetize the gospel or the power of Jesus and it totally backfires on them. And what, what happens within Ephesus? Uh, people are a little freaked out. So there's this fear that falls upon all of the people. And it's interesting because we see these people who, who are fearful... And then we see people who truly fear God, meaning they have this conversion experience to following after Jesus, and they respond completely differently. What do they do? They come confessing and divulging their practices. Now, Ephesus was uh, this hub of magic. It was um, a center for magic in the whole realm of Asia, and it was the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And all of these people come to realize the sin that exists in their lives, i.e. the magic practices that they've been trying to do, and they bring them before God, and they confess their sins, and they're like, we got to get rid of this stuff. And it's interesting that Luke tells us how much it was worth. 50,000 silver pieces. Like, man, why didn't you sell that? 
You could have sold that and you could have made all this money on your conversion. But the point is, they didn't want anyone else to have it. Because they knew that it was evil. It's like the time when I was in high school, and one night I woke up and there were demonic-like things in my bedroom, in the basement. And the youth kids are like, why were you scared of the dark in your basement? I haven't told them this story. This is like next level story. And that night I'd been listening to Alice in Chains. And I'm like, next morning I wake up and I'm like, I got to get rid of this. I got to get rid of this stuff that is bringing evil into my life. And so I didn't sell it. I smashed it and got rid of it. In the same way, these people know that what they are messing with, the evil that they're messing with, doesn't need to be sold. It needs to be destroyed. But for many of us, we don't understand the spiritual warfare that is going on around us. When we talk about demon possession, we're like, oh, that's weird. That's kind of a biblical thing. It's not. It's a real thing. In, in his chapter on the kingdom, Moore says, the kingdom of God is a declaration of war. Because when the kingdom of God is advanced in the world, evil is like, okay, game on, let's fight. And so we see this spiritual warfare going on within the city of Ephesus, and it should cause us to pause and think, what spiritual warfare is going on in my life today? Because the reality is, spiritual warfare wasn't just a biblical concept, it is a reality of this world that we live in. And the name of Jesus is what eradicates this warfare. Now after these events, Paul resolved, verse 21, in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I mean, this is like the first original Minnesota goodbye. So, hey, I'm going to head on and I'm going to take off. I got some places to go. Uh, need to get back to Jerusalem. Want to get to Rome. But why don't you guys take off? I'm going to stay here for just a little bit longer. About the time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods, and that there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that, they, that she may even be deposed from her significance, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Assyrics who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now the theater is a this huge area, about 25,000 people can, can be in there. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, Ephes- of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If they are Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So Artemis was uh, the god of... um, wild creatures and basically this great goddess uh, of the Ephesian area. And, and the temple to Artemis was four times that of the Parthenon. And it had 127 60-foot-high pillars surrounding this whole area. So we're talking massive, massive complex it was actually listed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And they, found, they first discovered it again in 1869. So it was this massive place, and obviously it was a big deal for these people to be worshiping Artemis. Now, Paul shows up, and what happens? The culture starts to, sh- starts to change, and people are coming to faith in Jesus, following the way, and they're no longer doing business with people like Demetrius. And he has a problem. He has a big problem. He's like, this Paul Yehu is, is really, I mean, Christmas isn't going to be that great this year in my house because Paul has really undercut my business and, and the people no longer come, come around and buy my stuff. So what does he do? He incites this big riot. And they all gather together in this 25,000-seat big arena, okay? Sort of like TCF Bank Stadium minus about half. And there's this big uh, group of people, and they're chanting great. It's kind of like Skull, but great is Artemis of the Ephesians, kind of similar um, craziness. Why would you chant that? I don't know. Um, But you get the idea. And it's so tenuous that Paul's like, all right, I'm going to go in there and deal with it. And his people are like, no, you're not. 
Now, we are talking about the guy who has been stoned and brought back to life. He's been in all these crazy situations. They're like, okay, no, this, like you've done a lot of things. You're not going into this spot. It was a bad place to be. And it kind of had me scratching my head like, how do we distinguish between a wise, uh, faithful, courageous decision for the Lord let me put that as a true caveat, and, and just a dumb idea. <laughs> because clearly for Paul to head into this place was probably a dumb idea. And how does it all come to a resolution? This town clerk. And it's interesting because we think, okay, was this town clerk, was he on Paul's side? Was he in favor of the way? Had he been converted? No. The town clerk was basically responsible for keeping the peace. And if he would allow this riot to take place, the Romans would come to him and they would say, hey, how dare you let this happen? It's kind of like the babysitter, right? Like, did you ever hire a babysitter and you get home and the house is like trash and the kids are like, "Uh, it's not... It's not our fault. It's the babysitter's fault. We had this babysitter once. We only had one male babysitter in my whole life. And it involved a a chemical war through the uh, laundry chute. And my parents got home. They're like, he's fired. (laughs) And uh, the three of you are in trouble. You go to bed. The town clerk is basically the babysitter's like, all right, you guys have no grounds for this riot. Everyone go home. And that's what happened. Like, after all this, where's like the big rousing conclusion to Paul's time in Ephesus? And, and there really isn't any. And so why does, why does Luke give us this story at the end of Paul's time in Ephesus? And it's to give us a compare and contrast of these people who come to faith and they have these valuable things that are evil, And they're like, my faith in Christ is more important than any monetary thing that exists in my life. Therefore, I'm going to get rid of anything that is standing between me and God, or getting back to the conversation last week, any idol. And on the other side, we have all these people who are like, no, Jesus Christ and all these followers of the way are not going to stand in my way of making some money which is Demetrius. And we ask ourselves, where are we at on this spectrum of the importance of money compared to the advancement of the gospel in our own lives? After the uproar ceased, okay, after all this chaos is done, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristocrus, and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, 
And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Basically, we get the end of, or, or a big portion of, you see Paul goes from Ephesus, he goes north up to Troas, and does this big loop, goes um, to Greece, and comes back through. And what he's doing is he's going and he's visiting all these churches that have been planted and doing some pastoral care with them. And he references this, these events in Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians and also 2 Corinthians. Because Paul wasn't just concerned with starting churches, he was concerned with the advancement of the gospel and the health of these disciples and their commitment to living out this experience. And so it wasn't like this short-term mission thing that he does and then goes home and feels good about it. No, he was invested, and he had invested his whole life. But right now, his goal is to get to Jerusalem and then eventually on to uh, Rome, which we know he does. All right? Go to your groups for an a very lively and lengthy discussion. You have many, many questions. Enjoy them.